You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I am excited to be here with you. For those of us that are here in the auditorium, for those of you who are at home, and uh, for those of you who are in the back in our new venue. Uh, so uh, we are grateful. As Kevin said, we are under many roofs, but also under one name. So glad to have you this morning. I think it's pretty big time when uh, the pastor Monty gets mentioned in a Burroughs sermon. I'm going to see if I can get ramped up to that level of of uh, being recognized. I thought that was good. I thought that's that's something to aspire to that's healthy, right? I love the name Pastor Monty. So uh, if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 18 this morning as we continue to teach through Luke. As we know, Jesus is heading to the cross and uh, man, he's, uh, he's getting close. So there's a little book that I came across years ago entitled Dear Pastor. It's a book that contains various letters and, and questions to pastors from children. And one of them, uh, a guy named Arnold, age 8, wrote this. Dear Pastor, I know God loves everyone, but do you think he knows my sister? Right? You get the point. little sibling rivalry there. And we know that kids have a way of just telling the unfiltered truth. They're painfully honest at times. And as I read and studied this passage this week, I thought this is a, another text this morning where Jesus tells the unfiltered truth. He does it about babies, about a rich young ruler, and about his own resurrection. And he'll do so because there's a lot at stake. Truth matters when there's a lot at stake. The question that has been asked in our text this morning, the big idea, if you would, is this. How does one obtain eternal life? That question and the answer to that question has been the most important question and answer in the history of the world. From the year 536, when researchers have come to the conclusion that it was the worst year in all of human history. The worst year to be alive in all of the history of the world because there was a worldwide famine that was caused by volcanic ash that covered most of the world at the time. Or, during the Thirty Years' War, fought in Europe between 1618 and 1648, where 8 million people died to the year 1918, when World War I was actually a little speck, if you would, of a crisis compared to the Spanish flu that infected one-third of the world's population and 30 to 50 million people died. Think about that pandemic. Or to 1947, in the partition of India, where India was divided into the countries of India and Pakistan. One million people died as a result of that bloody conflict. And then we bring ourselves to today, where we live in the midst of a world of COVID-19 pandemic, high escalating racial tensions, and many other things going on in our world. Even in the midst of all there was in the past and all there is today, the greatest question man must answer is how does he obtain eternal life? In the best of times, 
and in the worst of times, in everything in between? That is the greatest question and answer. And it's infinitely more important than anything, anywhere, anytime. And here's the reason. I think the reasons are many, but primarily the reasons are twofold. Folks, it is a big deal where people spend eternity. You either, as R.C. Sproul says, you die in Christ or you die in your sins. There's no in-between. And secondly, the God of the universe, when he comes to live inside a person via his spirit, fundamentally transforms, transforms that person to affect the world that he's living in no matter what is going on in that world. This person, as we've said here at this church, during our deep roots time, this person begins to make room for the mission of God. So let me read with you. We have three little sections of Scripture this morning. Read with me verses 15 through 17 first. It says, Now they were bringing even infants to Jesus, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. I put in your notes, child likeness is an essential ingredient to inherit eternal life. So we see here that... People were bringing babies to Jesus, which was sort of normal in their day, meaning uh, Jewish folks would bring babies under one year of age to be blessed by the rabbi. But the questions that come up are two. But why would the disciples rebuke the people from bringing the babies? Did you not think that when you read that? Like, why would they stop the people from doing that? And secondly, why would Jesus rebuke them back? There's a rebuking going on here. In Mark's account, actually our account this morning is in three uh, Gospels. It's in Luke where we're at. It's in Mark and it's in Matthew. In Mark's account, in Mark 10, it says Jesus was indignant that they were stopping the people from bringing the babies. He was ticked. He was frustrated. He didn't like it. Now, the answer to the first question is this. The disciples have sort of taken on this self-appointed task, if you would, of protecting Jesus from those that they didn't think were important. They had become sort of like the president's secret service group, and they were filtering who was coming forth, back and forth to Jesus. If there was an influential person in the society uh, that wanted to see Jesus, that was good for the ministry. If there was a person who was sick, that was good for the ministry. They were brand building at this time, if you would. And they saw children were not significant. Children were simply not important enough. And so they rebuked them. The answer to the second question is I think it was, and we'll see, a gospel issue. That childlikeness was an essential ingredient or attitude to inherit eternal life. And Jesus wanted them to get this. When it comes to the gospel, it's important to get it right. And Jesus wanted to, to make sure they understood that there's a certain attitude 
or attribute that everyone, not only children, but everyone needs to bring to the table if they are going to enter or inherit eternal life. So what is that childlike quality these babies bring and that Jesus is requiring of everyone to enter the kingdom of God? Now, if you do some study on this, you're going you're gonna to see a lot of things out there. And I came across a lot of things this week, and I was like, nope, nope, nope. Some say, primarily, it's an attribute of humility. Well, when I read the scriptures, that's not what the scriptures say about children. <laughs> the scriptures tell us that children are born sinners. The Proverbs speak often of children being foolish. And if you have children, or you've been around children, as sweet as they are and can be, as cute as they are and can be, you know one thing for sure. Humility doesn't describe a child. They are about their own way. They demand it. They want it now. And they're unfiltered in telling you they want it now. The world truly revolves around children, does it not? Secondly, some say it's this virtue of faith. But again, the Proverbs tell us children are naturally gullible. Faith is trust in the right people and the right things. Gullibility is trust, or being gullible is trusting in the wrong people and things. And so we know children do just that. My grandkids were just in town. I can fool them and trick them. I can say, look, look, look. And they look down, and I poke them. And I can three minutes later, look, look, look. I get them every time. I can pull stuff out of their ears, and they go, how do you do that, Papa? They're gullible. So I don't think humility and this virtue of faith are the qualities or attribute or attitude that everyone needs to bring to the table to inherit eternal life. So Jesus takes children in his arms, and he tells everyone they must enter like these children are coming to him. Here's what it is. It's an illustration that no person comes to Jesus in their own strength. They were carried to him. These were babies. They are not coming via their own wisdom. They're not coming via their own works or good works. They are coming in total helplessness and weakness. That is the attribute that every person is required of every person to inherit eternal life. I want you to think with me, just generally speaking in the Gospels, every person who came to Jesus and we see was saved in the Gospels, they were helpless and weak. Those who were not saved came in health and strength. Jesus, matter of fact, said, I didn't come for those who are what? Healthy. I came for those who are sick. The thing that commends children to Jesus is their helplessness not their goodness. And in doing so, they receive his grace or his blessing. And look, this is in direct contrast. This is a setup, if you would. This is in direct contrast to what's coming next in our passage of this rich young ruler who speaks proudly of his own goodness. He speaks proudly of what he's done since childhood to earn God's favor. It's just as if Luke put these stories together back to back to show us the contrast or heighten the difference
between how children come to Jesus and how the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. Every person who has or will that comes to place their trust in Christ, Jesus saying must bring nothing to the table but helplessness and weakness. C.S. Lewis summarizes it, and he says, we are all born helpless. So, how does one obtain eternal life? Our text tells us this is childlikeness, this specific attribute or attitude of helplessness and weakness is an essential ingredient to eternal life. Everyone must come that way. Secondly, in your notes it says being good and rich are major stumbling blocks to inherit eternal life. Now, we're going to spend the majority of our time here because the majority of the text is here. There's sort of a setup, there's the core text, and then there's conclusion. Let me read verses 18 through 30. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, the rich ruler heard these things, he became very sad. For he was extremely rich. Jesus, saying that he had become, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. So here we have the story of the rich young ruler. It's not a parable. It's a real story. It really happened this interaction between Jesus and this man. And I, I first want us to just make some observations about this man, to, to take notice of some things that the text tells us is true of him. One, he was rich, he was young, he was a ruler, probably uh, held a position of being over a local synagogue. He was attracted to Jesus, Mark 10, 17, our parallel passage tells us he was not like the Pharisees who opposed Jesus, but instead was drawn to Jesus. And then in Mark 10, 21, it says Jesus was attracted to him, that Jesus looked on this man and loved him. He, he felt emotion for him. Now, this ruler was convinced that he had kept the Old Testament law, but he was still lacking the assurance of eternal life. Think about that. Seemingly, this man seemingly had everything. He was rich. He was influential. 
He was young. He was wealthy. He had status in the community. He was, he believed God's word, the Old Testament. He was God-fearing. We would say in the South, that is a fine, outstanding young man. Is he not just a super guy? And he comes to Jesus, and he initiates the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? See, he knew he lacked something. He just didn't know what it was. He had it all, but as we know, he still had a huge void in his life. This lacking is confirmed by Jesus when Jesus told him, there is one thing you lack. One writer put it this way, said the rich young ruler lacked one thing, but in lacking that one thing, he lacked everything. I want you to notice with me the young Jewish ruler understood that eternal life, he understood eternal life in the way that a Jew would understand eternal life. Yes, it is a life that lasts forever, that's obvious, but it's also a kind of life or quality of life where life has meaning and purpose in the here and now because this kind of eternal life is connected to God himself which means it's a life of joy untethered to circumstances it's a life of peace because of God's presence and it's amazing to me reading this text that a man this respected and well off in the Jewish community would run to Jesus and publicly fall on his knees. That's what Mark 10 tells us. He gives us a few more details here and confess this kind of dissatisfaction with his life. He had it all and he publicly runs through the crowd, falls on his knees and says, I'm lacking something. How can I have eternal life? No assurance, no peace. In some ways, I thought, he is the seeker that we would hope would all come to us. Wouldn't it be great to walk into Walmart, and this guy or gal runs up to you, falls on their knees, and say, Christian, tell me, how can I obtain eternal life? We're like, wow, this, this is evangelism one-on-one. I'm excited. I've been praying for that. Doesn't happen that way, though typically does it. This guy does it. And the rich young ruler, think about this, he came to the right source. There are many people who are looking for eternal life, but they go to the wrong place to find it. He came to the one who is life. He came to what the scripture says is the author of life. He came to the one who alone can give life. He came to the one who the apostle John in his gospel called life 34 times. In that, he calls Jesus a good teacher. And in Matthew 19, 16, again, our parallel passage, this man again uses the word good in reference to the work that he might be able to do to inherit eternal life. He asks the question in Matthew 19, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life. So here Jesus was good, and so was he. He was a good man, one writer said, going to another good man 
to answer life's most important question. And the lack of distinction that he makes between him and Jesus is his tragic mistake. Jesus good. I'm good. We're just helping each other out. Verse 19. Jesus responds by asking him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. That, that's, he, Jesus is reminding him of this Jewish truth that was taught. Now, what's, what's sad about this is some people have used this verse to try to convince others that Jesus was denying his divinity. <laughs> but Jesus really was challenging this man to consider. If only God was good, as a Jew would confirm, then you need to recognize that I am God, and if I am God, are you willing to do whatever I tell you? I just want us to pause a minute because I think that's a great question for us this morning. If Jesus is God, are we willing to do whatever he tells us? That's the challenge he's giving them. That's the continued challenge the New Testament gives us. Verse 20, Jesus gives him this test, if you would. Jesus says to him, yo, you're a Jew. You're a ruler in the synagogue. You know the Ten Commandments. Have you obeyed these? And he lists off the five commandments that have to do with horizontal relationships. Have you committed adultery? Murder? Steal? Lie, have you honored your mother and your father, your father and your mother? Now, maybe he hadn't committed adultery, but we know Jesus says if you committed lust in your heart, maybe he hadn't actually killed someone, but Jesus said if you hate someone, it's the same. Surely he stole something. I, anybody here has ever stole anything? Raise your hand. Come on, some of y'all lying this morning. That's the next one. Did he lie? Yeah, I stole a Snickers bar one time and got caught. It might be the only thing I ever stole. Ten years old, Pope Dime store. Uh, certainly he lied. Jesus knows before this man can respond to the perfect goodness of him, of Jesus, he must come first to the painful realization that he is a sinner. No man, if you think about it, or no woman needs the perfect goodness of God if he's bringing his own goodness to the table. So here's what Jesus does. Jesus basically holds up the mirror of the law to him and said, I want you to evaluate yourself in light of God's perfect law. And he did that because this Jew was a law keeper. This Jew was familiar with the law. So Jesus, in his evangelism, used exactly what this man would know. He holds up this mirror, and here's what we know about a mirror. If you go buy a mirror at a store and you see that it's cracked, one crack in the mirror makes the mirror broken. And the scriptures tell us that one sin against the law makes us all what? Sinners. See, the law's purpose, we talked through this in Romans, was to expose our sins to us. 
The law's purpose was to create in us an awareness of our sin before a holy God. It was to make us like the babies that were being brought to Jesus, to break us down, to make us helpless and weak, that we would come to God and say, I have nothing to bring except my sinfulness, and I am in great need of a Savior. In Romans 7, this is how Paul put it. He said, if it were not for the law, I would not have known sin. He's, Paul said the law was killing him. He was trying to find life from the law. And the more he tried to follow the law, the more he realized he was sinning. The law was this mirror that said, bro, you ain't getting it done. Paul said it brought him to the end of himself and made him helpless and weak. Philippians 3 gives us another picture of Paul. So this is the rich young ruler who thinks he's good and he's rich. Well, the apostle Paul was the rich young ruler on steroids. If anyone has reason, Paul said in Philippians 3, to put confidence in the flesh, I do. If anyone has reason not to be helpless and weak, I do. Paul was what we would call in our modern day the GOAT, the G-O-A-T, the greatest of all time, literally. Some have called him a terrorist for Judaism because of his passion. But something powerful happened to Paul as Romans 7 tells us. The law is killing him because it makes him see his sin. And the law becomes what condemns him before a holy God. Romans 5 clarifies, and it says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Jesus knew that before this man could get grace, he had to get law, meaning he had to see the fatal flaw in his own heart, that he was a sinner and then only then could he abandon himself and turn to the perfect law keeper for grace. This man was not there yet. But Jesus was pressing to try to get him to see it. There's something we got to be careful about when sharing the gospel with others. We cannot just say Jesus loves you. You want to ask him into your heart and forget. No. We, the person that comes to Christ, they must deal with their sin. If they don't deal with their sin, they will never get a Savior. I love how R.C. Sproul puts it. He said, for a Christian to be a Christian, he must first be a sinner. Being a sinner is a prerequisite for being a church member. The Christian church is one of the few organizations in the world that requires a public acknowledgement of sin as a condition for membership. This rich young ruler is not there yet, folks, and he won't get there. The rich young ruler's answer to Jesus laying out these five of the ten commandments, verse 21. He said, I've obeyed all of these since childhood. I've talked to many of folks, and I've asked them the question, if you stood before God and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? 
folks that have been in church all their life, and their first answer is about their own good works. It is a red flag. It's when you press into that, and then they get angry with you because you're doubting their own goodness. I'm convinced, whether it's this church and churches all over Murfreesboro, the South, the nation, the world, they are a non-Christian sitting there because they are at the same place that this young man is. One writer responded to the rich young ruler's response to Jesus that he's obeyed all of these as a child with this quote. An answer more full of darkness and self-ignorance is impossible to imagine. He is a man who knows nothing rightly about God or himself. This rich young ruler was a man of part of deeds, works, and action-based performance system. He had done so much that he can't figure out what he has not done. He was a friendly legalist. Most legalists are not friendly. They're mean. He was a friendly legalist, but he was a legalist all the same. Matthew 19, our parallel passage, tells us the man asked Jesus what he still lacked. Now we know that from this broad biblical teaching, comprehensive in the New Testament, we know what he lacked. He lacked the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ transferred him in the great exchange when a sinner who comes to God helpless and needy and weak and he cries out, Oh Lord, I am a sinner, depart from me. And Jesus looks at him as he looks at Peter square in the face when Peter said those words and he said, You get up, you're forgiven, you follow me. And this great exchange happens where Christ's righteousness is placed on us and our sin is placed on Christ. That's what he lacked. But to get to this righteousness, a person must know they need it. And again, he is not there. Look at verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you, shall, you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Jesus says, sell everything and follow me. Jesus actually puts up a barrier to this man. But folks, if we read the Gospels, this isn't new. We know in Luke and other Gospels, Jesus has been doing this all along. Jesus is not for superficial, superficial conversions. Jesus is not for easy believism. Jesus says, we know in other places... Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow what? Me. I want to contrast this guy to the Apostle Paul. Let me go back to Paul in Philippians 3, 8 through 11. Here's was his response. When Jesus challenged him about his sin and inability to keep the law and his own goodness and his lack of helplessness and weakness, here's how Paul responded to it. Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever it was, respect, money, prestige, friends, title, power, I give it all up 
This guy was unwilling to do that. Paul says, indeed, I count everything as loss. And Paul lost it all, folks, even his life. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. The word is dung. In order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith and trust in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may inherit eternal life. What a contrast. This man, the rich young ruler, failed to recognize Jesus as God. And if he had, he would have been like the man in the gospel account that finds the great pearl. He'd have went and sold all he had to purchase it. Entrance into the kingdom of God is way more valuable than earthly riches, Jesus is saying. This man's problem was he valued the wrong treasure. Money was this man's idol, which he loved more than God. God was a means to him and not an end. The rich man wanted to live forever, but he really didn't want God. One writer put it this way, For the rich young ruler, his goodness and his gold have become his God. Verses 23 through 25, the man walked away sad. And Jesus gives a stark warning as he walks away. He says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. We know that prosperity is a seduction. And Jesus gives an illustration. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, many people have said what that means and that there was a little gate in Jerusalem they used. But, you know, a lot of scholars say, why go through the little gate when you walk 10 yards down and go to the big gate? All Jesus is doing here is, is using hyperbole to say it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle I put in your notes, possessions may not only keep a man from heaven, as they did with the rich young ruler, but many times they also hinder spiritual hunger and maturity. Wealth and possessions can be a danger to us. Here's how the writer in Proverbs 30 puts it. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. How wise. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Verse 26, the disciples are shocked by Jesus' words. <laughs> Look, he shocked them when he said babies have significance. He flipped their values upside down on his head, and he does it again here. And that's what Jesus does. He, he tells us what to value and what not to value. And here he does it again is because in their mind as a Jew, financial riches were a sign of God's blessing. It was the first, uh, if you would, prosperity gospel theologians. 
So they're shocked, and their reply is, then who can be saved? Verse 27, with man, salvation is, poss- is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Jesus says it takes a miracle that God's fully, fully well of completing. And he's going to tell us about that in the last few verses, this miracle of his resurrection. In verses 28 through 30, Peter speaks up, and he's like old Peter. He's the spokesperson for all the disciples. He's always speaking up, and he says, Yo, Jesus, uh, I just want to check in with you here. We left everything for you. Matthew 19 adds what he meant by this. What then will there be for us? Peter is saying, Jesus, are there any benefits for those who, of us who did what you asked, that we left all? We walked away from our businesses, become full-time ministers, but that doesn't, that doesn't translate to today. You, you see the heart behind that. We walked away from that. Is it really worth it to follow you wholeheartedly? Jesus says it's worth it in these verses. Life connected to me is worth it in the here and now and in the life to come. A life of human flourishing, a life that counts, a life that matters, a life with God that I graciously granted you. Now, I'm not sure how this will look in all your lives. God has a way of making those verses come true in all our individual individual lives and families. But I know it's true for me. Life with Christ has saved me not only eternally, but it's also saved me from myself thousands of times. I trembled last night thinking about what my life would have looked like without Christ, without his word, without his people, without his church, without his spirit, without his correction, without his conviction, without his comfort, without his provision. I would have lived a wasted life. It would have been tragic. Jesus says it has benefits for this life and the life to come. And then lastly, as we wrap up here, trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus alone guarantees you will inherit eternal life. In verses 31 through 34, I, don't, I won't read those, but... Basically, in these passages, Jesus for the sixth time mentions his death. And for the first time in Luke, he mentions the Gentiles' role in his death, that they will mock him and beat him and spit upon him. But he says, I will rise again. He says, I will rise again. Did he rise again? Paul says, if he didn't, you and I are to be pitied. He did rise again. Matter of fact, we say he is risen. If he is not risen, we are to be pitied. The disciples, the text tells us, didn't understand this at this time, but we do. So how does a person inherit eternal life? They first come to God helpless and weak, empty-handed, knowing that they bring nothing to the table. That is a hard, hard decision for proud Americans. 
They see any goodness that they think they have as a filthy rags and come to a realization they are full-blown sinners standing under the condemnation of a holy and perfect God. They realize at some point, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? But all the possessions in the world still leaves them lacking what is most valuable. And then they put their trust in Christ. They put their trust in Christ's death and finished work on the cross in order for a payment for the penalty of their sin. And then he comes to live inside of them. And life change and transformation happens. I don't know where you are this morning, whether here at home or in the back room, but I want you to ask some questions this morning. The first question is, have I obtained eternal life? Do I know Christ or have I been churchified? Secondly, the questions this morning is what's most valuable to you? Have you found the great pearl? And are you willing to put aside whatever it is that competes for that? And that's a, that's a sanctification process. That's a growth process as we do that. Take a few minutes to ask the question this morning. So what?